to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, as we conclude our time in Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4. Following this week, we're going to spend two sermons uh, reflecting on church membership. Next week, we'll look at the subject, is church membership biblical? Must I join a local church? And then the following Sunday, we're going to look at another aspect of church membership, and we're going to look at church membership as a covenant, a covenant between God and us, and between us and one another. And then the first Sunday in June, we're going to have a good friend of mine here with us, Dr. Russell Fuller. Dr. Fuller was a professor of Old Testament for 20 plus years at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he is going to preach a sermon reflecting on the narrative from Exodus chapter 3 and the giving of the divine name and the way in which the giving of this divine name is developed throughout the text of Scripture. So I know you'll want to be here for that. And then we begin our series through the Psalms, our series through the Psalms. And this summer, we're going to have a few of Woodlawn's own preaching through the Psalms with us. Uh, Nathan Richardson is going to preach uh, a sermon through the Psalm on one of the Psalms. Frankie Johnson is going to preach uh, Psalm 51, and Brother Huey Moak is going to preach one of the Psalms for us. We tried to have Brother Huey preach at the end of last year, and due to his cancer treatments, he wasn't able to do that, but he saw me last Sunday, and he said, Pastor, if there's a spot on the schedule for me to preach, I'm interested in doing so. So, Brother Huey, there's a spot on the schedule for you, brother, and we look forward to hearing Uh, you proclaim the word of the Lord to us. Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, as we conclude our time together in Exodus chapter 4 this morning in verses 18 through 31, Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, we see this truth. God works in ways, God works in mysterious ways, we might even say, that defy human reason. God works in ways that defy human reason for three purposes. To show his power, to show his power, to show that his redemption is unique. His redemption is unique and that he alone is worthy to be worshiped. That he alone is worthy to be worshiped. God works in ways that defy human reason to show us his power is superior, that his redemption is unique, and that he alone is worthy to be praised. We begin our time here in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, and Moses, from the very beginning, just kind of jumps into summary fashion for us. We've been in Exodus 3, from Exodus 3 through Exodus 4, chapter 17, we've seen this uh, theophany, this appearance of God himself, and God is communicating directly with Moses in the most uh, of unique ways. We see the experience of the burning bush. We know that Moses has been away from Egypt for 40 years, and now notice how this text of Scripture begins here in verse 18. Just with a very quick summary fashion, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, it's as though Moses is saying, let's get this 
uh, show on the road. Let's get to the story of Egypt. Let's get to this narrative. Let's get to this point of which we're all waiting. So Moses goes back to Jethro. He goes back to, to Midian. He's been at Mount Sinai. He's had this incredible encounter with God. So he goes back and he says, to his father-in-law Jethro, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And notice the relationship that Moses clearly has with Jethro. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Shalom. May the presence of God be with you. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 19 in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his, notice what the text says, sons. Now, up until this point, how many children do we know Moses has? Somebody said it over here. One. We know he has one, one son, Gershom, but the text now here tells us that he has a plurality of sons. We actually know Moses has two sons, right? So we see from this text that Moses now has sons, and he uh, had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And notice how Moses closes this summary statement. And we know that something miraculous is going to take place. And Moses took the staff of God. The staff of God, we noticed last week, would function not only in Moses' life to elicit faith in his life, but the staff of God would also function in a larger context to elicit belief and faith in the life of the nation of Israel so that the nation of Israel might believe that indeed Moses is the one sent by God to lead them out of captivity and toward freedom. But not only would this staff serve as a means of eliciting faith and trust and hope in Moses' life and the life of the nation of Israel, but that staff would be used as a mighty display of God's power to ultimately bring about redemption for the nation of Israel as the Lord uses that in splitting the Red Sea. So Moses has given us a summary statement. The narrative is progressing quickly. And notice what we see first. God is going to work in a way that defies human reasoning to show his power is superior. Look at the superior power of Yahweh. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. We noted at least three of those miracles from last week. One of those miracles was Moses sticking his hand into his garment and pulling it out and it being uh, leprous. These three displays of God's power are, of course, going to be multiplied in this narrative that is soon to begin as the Lord gives all of these plagues to the nation of Israel and ultimately culminating with the death of all of the firstborn sons in Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. So the Lord is commanding Moses that you're going to appear in Egypt before the most powerful man in all of the world, and the power that Pharaoh has 
when I am done is going to look like nothing compared to my power. There is in this narrative, in the book of Exodus, this competing dynamic taking place. Who supposes that he is indeed the true God? Pharaoh. Who supposes that he is the one who is almighty and all-powerful? Pharaoh. Who is going to be shown as the one who is almighty and all-powerful? Not Pharaoh. Yahweh. There is this competing battle that is taking place, and we already see this in this narrative. Moses, go before Pharaoh and really show Pharaoh who is God. Notice what the text of Scripture says. I have put uh, all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." God is going to prove that his power is superior to anything that the Egyptians have ever seen. And this narrative here in chapter 4, verse 21, begins this narrative that is going to culminate in chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 in showing exactly what God will do to display his might and his power. It's this narrative of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 22 times the text is going to mention to us that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. And of those 22 times, about half of those is the text reminding us that God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh or the will or the stubbornness of Pharaoh. And about half of those times, the text is indicating that Pharaoh himself is indeed hardening his own heart against the will and the power and the might of Yahweh. The text uses three different Hebrew words to define this hardening. And let me give you a real quick Hebrew lesson on these three words for hardening. Anybody want to take a guess at what these three, three Hebrew words mean? Hardening. All of them have some form of a different nuance. For example, this first word that occurs here in our text from Hebrews, sorry, from Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, hazak, is a word that speaks of ultimately stubbornness. And notice how the text says it. He's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. The idea of the heart from the text of scripture, but for sure in the Egyptian mindset was the heart being the seat of the will and the mind and the reason. So notice what the text of scripture is saying to 
to Pharaoh or to Moses and the connection between the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the signs that God is going to do. The hardening of Moses's, of Pharaoh's heart is going to be conditioned on the signs that God is going to do to ultimately display his might and his power. So we see in this text of scripture that God is reminding Moses, if you will, we already know Moses is very hesitant about completing this task, is he not? We saw that last week in chapter four. Moses has tried at least on three different occasions to say to the Lord, not I, don't send me. But Moses is going to go. The Lord has uh, fulfilled every objection that Moses has given to the Lord. God has answered, and so Moses is going to go. And if Moses is going to go, and Moses is going to persevere in this dialogue that's going to happen back and forth between he and Pharaoh, it's important, don't you think, that Moses would know going into this, Moses, you have a really difficult, hard task. God is going to use these signs ultimately to display his power. And we're going to look just a few moments in Exodus chapter 9 in a couple of texts as Moses gives for us what the purpose of this hardening narrative really is in the life of Pharaoh, but not only in the life of Pharaoh, for the nation of Israel, for the nation of Egypt, and ultimately for you and for me. I am going to make him stubborn, if you will. I am going to give him a a courageous heart, a boldness of heart, we might say. I'm going to harden his will, his mind, and his reason so that he's going to stand in opposition to me, Yahweh. He's not going to let the people go. But we have an indication of what's taking place here through the use of this word heart. What do we know already from the narrative. You guys are studying the book of Genesis in Sunday school. What do we already know about the condition of the human heart apart from God? It's wicked. How do we know that the human heart is wicked? Look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And here, what Moses has already indicated to us about the, about the human heart. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his... The thoughts of his mind, the thoughts of his will, the thoughts of his reasoning. What is the problem with the human heart? The thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, to the very seat of emotion and will and reasoning of God. We're not surprised as we read the text that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened against God. In fact, this is not a surprise to us in a number of ways. 
we already see from the very opening pages of this story in the book of Exodus, what is Pharaoh's disposition toward the people of God? Does he love them? Is he thankful for them? Does he rejoice with them? Does he long to worship Yahweh with them? No. From the very beginning of the opening pages of the book of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh's heart is set against the people of God and ultimately against God himself. Pharaoh himself even seeking to kill all of the firstborn children of the nation of Israel. Pharaoh's heart, my friend, in many ways, is so much like my heart and your heart apart from God. Pharaoh's heart is like my heart apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pharaoh's heart is like your heart. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never submitted your life to God, don't only read this text as a text that indicates the evilness of Pharaoh's heart, read it as an indication of the evilness of your own heart. For apart from Christ, your life, your mind, your reason is set in opposition to God. Paul reminds us of this truth in a number of texts. In Ephesians chapter 4, he reminds us that we were at one point in our lives enemies of God. We were hostile in our thinking toward God. But Ephesians chapter uh, 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Pharaoh's heart is an indication of my heart and an indication of your heart apart from Christ. But we're going to see what happens in Pharaoh's own life as God continues to display his might and his power against this one who presupposes himself to be the one who is mighty and powerful. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he's stubborn. He's made stubborn against God. We already know from Exodus chapter 3 that the only way in which Pharaoh is going to respond is if God does so with a strong and mighty and, and powerful hand. Why else would Pharaoh himself stand in such opposition of, against God? It's not normal. Like if some guy came to you and said, hey, if you don't give me, I don't know, $10,000 right now, I'm about to make all the water in your house turn into blood. And you say, you're crazy. I don't believe it. I'm not giving you the $10,000. And he says, okay. He strikes your water faucet. And then the only thing you, that happens when you turn on every water spigot in your house, blood comes out. You're probably thinking really quickly, okay, dude, here's the $10,000, right? But in case you continue to be stubborn, and the guy said, all right, you won't listen to that. How about this? Tomorrow morning, or tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow morning when you wake up or you return from work, I'm just going to flood your entire house with frogs so that you won't be able to accomplish anything. They're going to be in your oven. They're going to be in your refrigerator. They're going to be in your bathtub. They're going to be in your toilet bowl. There won't be one place that you can step in your house where frogs won't be. Say, well, I'm not quite sure about this guy. Man, he turned the water into, into blood. I'm going to call his bluff on this one. No, thank you. I'm not giving you $10,000. And then you wake up the next morning and you're covered in frogs and your house is covered in frogs. How long do you persist? 
It is not natural even for Pharaoh to persist against such mighty and strong and powerful displays. There's only one way to explain why Pharaoh would continue to resist. God has hardened his heart. God has granted him a stubborn will. For what purpose? Why? What does this level of display accomplish? Look with me in Exodus chapter 14, and we'll make our way back to chapter 9. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, verse 8, verse 17. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Look again at chapter 4, verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptian pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped them by the sea. Look at verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then move back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. This perhaps is the center of this plague narrative, and notice how the text of Scripture defines the purpose for this hardening. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. For what purpose? So that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. What is God attempting to accomplish what will God accomplish in displaying his might and his power in this superior way? God will get glory, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians who are worshiping false, dead, hopeless idols that have no power will ultimately know who the true living God really is. But notice how Moses concludes this section on God displaying his power. Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that, we may, that he may serve me. If you're reading from the NIV this morning, your NIV translates this word, let my son go that he may worship me. 
If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the first time in the text of Scripture that the firstborn is used in reference to the nation of Israel. We see it again of God's affection for the nation of Israel in the book of Hosea. Listen to how Hosea in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 recounts God's relationship with the nation of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I call my son. God has this affection for the nation of Israel that is different than his affection and care and compassion for other people. God has a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. And there's a lot of covenant language and ideology that is taking place here as God thinks or, or, or God reveals to Moses that Israel is his firstborn son. First, we go back to Genesis chapter 12. We see this promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 that God is going to give to Abram a people. He's going to be the father of this nation. And this nation is going to be unique. It's going to have unique relationship with God. It's going to be unique in all of the world. But there are both covenant promises and covenant stipulations, not only for the nation of Israel, but also to others. We learn quickly in this narrative that those who will oppose this covenant group of people will themselves find themselves opposed by whom? God. And by the way, this entire narrative of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ultimately a fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis, that those who oppose the nation of Israel will be opposed by God. The, fa- the narrative of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a statement of God's judgment against those who stand ultimately in opposition to God's will. But God has this covenant relationship with the nation of of Israel. And what has Egypt done with this covenant people? Egypt has gone after God's covenant people. Egypt has mistreated God's covenant people. And God is reminding Moses of Israel's priority in his overarching economy. Israel is God's firstborn son. But notice what this liberation is, friends. This liberation, as one theologian noted, is not just simply liberation from service. For notice what the text of Scripture says. Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. Yahweh says. This liberation is not liberation from service, but a liberation from working for the wrong master. See, friends, when God radically changes our lives, He liberates us from the power of sin. When God, through Christ, radically changes our hearts and our lives, he liberates us from the joy that we once found in living in rebellion against God and service to our own hearts and to our own ambitions and to our own desires. And our hearts are now turned 
in a new direction, with a new disposition. And no longer do we desire to serve and to please ourselves. We desire to serve and to please God, the almighty maker of the heavens and the earth. But if you're reading from the NIV, I told you, told you just a few moments ago, this text translates in the NIV, let my people go so that they may do what? Worship me. Notice just quickly at the very end of this narrative in verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. See, friends, this text reminds us and connects so well service and worship. Or as the Apostle Paul said, that we should do all things for the glory of God. When God changes our lives, he changes our heart's disposition, and we desire to worship and to serve this creator, God. Has your heart been set in that direction this morning, friend? Have you been liberated from the power of sin and darkness? Have you been liberated from the enjoyment of your own sin and enslavement to the things of this world and been given freedom in Christ? But notice what else is happening with this terminology of firstborn. We also learn from the New Testament that Jesus is a firstborn. Not literally in terms of birth order, if, 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 as if God has um, you know, these multiple children walking around and Jesus was somehow created. No, God, Jesus has eternally existed, but this word in the Greek New Testament is a word that speaks of prominence, preeminence. God himself had a firstborn son. God himself had a son, and what does this son do? This son has to die so that others might be liberated. Don't miss the implication of this text of Scripture for God's son, Jesus, and for you and me. Liberation only comes about at the price of sacrifice. And God, through Christ, has demonstrated the superiority of his power by providing to you and me salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus' life and the death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is God's supreme display of power and authority. God does work in ways that defy human reasoning, for Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians that this narrative of the gospel defies all of human reasoning. It is foolishness, the apostle Paul says, 
Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God has displayed his power in the most unique way to bring about salvation for you and for me. But notice what the text of Scripture says to us next. God not only displays his power in a way that defies human reasoning to indicate the superiority of his power, but he does so also to display the uniqueness or to show the uniqueness of his redemption. Look at verse 24, 25, and 26. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. Now I want to stop right there. Let's go back to the text in verse 24. Are you ready for it? Read along with me. Everybody looking at your text of Scripture? At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met who? Him. Who is him? Don't read any further. Just tell me who him is. Who? Moses. Okay. Anybody else? His son, okay. All right, let's keep reading. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Not quite sure who him is. Is it Moses or his son? And sought to put him to death. Who is him? Now, y'all read this text plenty of times. All right, let's keep reading. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and she touched. Touched who? Now, wait a minute. She said Moses, and he said his. If your Bible reads Moses here, raise your hand for me. Okay, half of you. If your Bible reads his, raise your hand for me. Now, some of you aren't raising your hands. Are you not reading your Bibles? <laughs> All right, friends, I want to take a time out. Don't count this against my minutes for this sermon, okay? Every Bible translation is a Bible interpretation. In fact, all of language works this way. There's some of you here this morning that English is not your first language. And so sometimes to understand what's taking place in English, you're having to maybe translate that back into your, into your mother language. Or you speak in your mother language, and we're trying to understand what you're saying in English. And so you have to give us ultimately an interpretation of the language that you have spoken. In verses 24, 25, and 26, the name Moses does not appear in the Hebrew text. The name Moses does not appear in the Hebrew text. Only him or his. So what's taking place in, the, in a lot of, it seems like the majority of our English Bibles this morning, what is taking place in this text of Scripture? The translator of your Bible and of my Bible, I'm reading from the ESV, has not given us a literal translation. They have given us an interpretation. They have taken the pronoun his 
and rendered it, at least in the ESV, as Moses. I would like to make a quick argument for you that whatever this weird scenario is here in verses 24, 25, and 26 is a reference to Gershom, Moses' son, and I want to make that to you not from hypotheticals. I want to make it to you solely from the text of Scripture. Are there clues in the text of Scripture that will lend itself to us understanding that whatever is taking place here is between ultimately God and Gershom, but for a larger audience? What just took place at the end of the last few verses we talked about? We had a conversation about a firstborn son, right? Israel is, is God's firstborn son. And notice how verse 23 ends. Verse 23 immediately ends, and if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your first born son. So we've already got this language from the text of son, firstborn son, and the idea of a firstborn son being killed. So now notice what happens immediately in verse 24. And at a lodging place on the, on the way, the Lord met him, Moses' firstborn son. And he sought to put to death Moses' firstborn son. Now, why might this be the case? Why might the Lord be responding in this way to Moses at this time? Remember, Moses has been away from the nation of Israel, has he not, for 40 years. Where was Gershom born? Was he born among the people of God? Or was he born down in Midian? He was born down in Midian. How long has Moses been gone from the people of God? Forty years. Did Moses marry into a family that were believers in Yahweh? No. He married into a family whose father was a Midianite high priest. They were idolaters. They worshiped a false god. So more than likely what's happened is Moses has a firstborn son. Moses has been called by God to go back to the nation of Israel to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery and into freedom. But there's a problem. Moses' firstborn son has not been circumcised, thus he has not been identified with the people of God, and therefore he stands under the judgment of God as an Israelite who has not been circumcised. And what is the penalty for an Israelite that has not been circumcised? Death. And what does his mother do? Don't miss it. His mother is another display of how God uses women in the text of Scripture to provide salvation. There's another story of God using 
some ladies in the book of Exodus to provide salvation. Do you remember it? The midwives. This encounter, we don't know much about it. It's quick, it's fast from the reading of the Hebrew text. But God meets Gershom in this journey back to Egypt. And in doing so, Zipporah clearly recognizes what is, what is going to take place. And so the Bible says that she takes out a flint and she cuts off uh, Gershom's foreskin and she touches it to, to his feet. She, she touches it to his, to his genitals and said, surely you are a, as this text says, a bridegroom, a, a blood relative. This word bridegroom translated here literally means relative. You are a blood relative of blood to, or a relative of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood. Why? Because of circumcision. The text, in every measurable way, communicates for us exactly what is taking place in this narrative. And this narrative serves in a larger image to remind us that redemption is only accomplished by the shedding of of blood. Zipporah saves her own son's life through the shedding of blood and redemption is provided for Gersham. And likewise, friends, this same uniqueness of redemption is displayed for you and me through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, had to shed his blood. He had to take on the wrath of God. He had to bear the penalty for sin that you and I deserve to bear. But Jesus bore that on the cross, and he gave his life so that you and I might have life and freedom in Christ. God does act in ways that are contrary to human reasoning, reason to display the superiority of his power, to demonstrate the uniqueness of his redemption. And then notice lastly in this text of Scripture, to show that only he and he alone is worthy of worship. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Isn't this interesting? We saw last week in Exodus chapter 4 that God said to, to Moses, hey, Aaron's already on his way out to meet you. Now the Lord is reminding him again, go into the wilderness, Aaron. You go into the wilderness, and there you're going to meet, there you're going to meet Moses. This isn't, the only, this isn't the first time we've seen some type of unique call like this and the, and, uh, the Pentateuch, here we go back to Genesis, and when God called Ab uh, Abram to leave, the text of Scripture doesn't say to us that God gave him a, a direct uh, map. He didn't have GPS, or he didn't have uh, Apple CarPlay, or anything like that to tell him exactly where to go. He just had God with him. 
The text is clearly displaying the superiority of God. God knows exactly what needs to happen to accomplish his, his will. Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went, and he met, met him at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Just as the text indicated. Verse 30, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And look at verse 31. What did the signs do for the people? They believed. And what does belief always lead to? What does faith always lead to? I'm glad you asked, verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God is displaying his mighty acts. God is working in the most unique ways that defy all of human reasoning so that you and I might understand and know that he and he alone is worthy of worship. God has to display these signs, which ultimately are signs of judgment against the nation of Israel, uh, sorry, the nation of Egypt. And in seeing these signs, the nation of Israel responds in belief. Listen at the way in which this works in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, we have this image of judgment. of God acting through Christ in such a way to bring about judgment that elicits from his people this eternal praise. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for which them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea with glass, with harps of God in their hand. This image of of glass and fire is an image of, of judgment. God is going to display his judgment against those who have not believed. And notice what God's display of judgment does for the people of God. Verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of the witnesses in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, 
with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke for the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God's judgment brings about belief. God's signs, God's wonders bring about belief and the life of his people in Exodus chapter 4, and they worship. Friends, when Jesus returns, God will display for you and for me this final, climactic act of God's power. And Revelation says that when we, the people of God, see His power displayed in this way, we will sing the song of Moses. We will sing for eternity. We will worship for eternity. And we will sing what John sees in Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And verse 5, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Will you be there on that day when Jesus returns? Will you be there for all of eternity to worship with the people of God? But friends, the goodness and the greatness of God is such that we don't have to wait until heaven or eternity to experience the worship of an almighty, all-powerful God. We can join in that worship of God today, right now, at this moment, tomorrow afternoon, Thursday morning, Friday at lunch, Saturday while you're at your kid's soccer tournament. You can and you must join in the worship of this triune God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you have indeed revealed yourself to us. And in that revelation, you have defied all human reasoning to show us the superiority of your power, the uniqueness of your redemption, and that you and you alone are worthy of our worship. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning, friend, and reflect on the text of Scripture and the preaching of God's Word today?
Have you experienced the uniqueness of God's redemption through Christ? Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, the greatest way for you to respond to this text of Scripture is for you to believe like the nation of Israel. To believe in God, to hope in Christ, to trust in Christ. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Would you trust in Christ today? For those of you who are believers, are you worshiping God? Is your life consumed with this one driving passion to honor and glorify God? Would you see this display of God's mighty acts from this text culminating in Christ? Would you see these mighty acts of God and how it calls the nation of Israel to worship? Would you ask God this morning to increase your affection for him today? Would you ask God to increase your trust and your belief in him today? And as an outflow of that faith and trust, would you ask God to increase in your life the worship of this triune God? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. It'll be an opportunity for you to come to one of us. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and talk to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you would like for one of us just to pray with you. You've seen from this text of Scripture God's mighty acts, and you're compelled to love God more, and you'd like for us to pray with you that that would indeed be true in your life. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, friend, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, May our response be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.